Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is with Hindol Sen Gupta and we are going to talk about his latest book, Sing, Dance and Pray, The Life. Uh, and this book is based on the life of Srila Prabhupada. Uh, Hindol, welcome back to the podcast, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, Kushal. Always a great pleasure talking to you and, uh, you know, great to see the podcast going from strength to strength. Yeah, Absolutely man. delighted. Yeah, and and it's 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 interesting because I think this is now our third or fourth chat on the podcast, right. if I remember co- correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, so you've been one of my early guests, so you've seen the entire journey of the podcast from the early days yeah. to, to 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 today. So yeah, I'm I'm grateful to to each and everyone who was part of that journey. But okay, so let's start with this now. Yeah. Obviously, we know you know you've you've covered historical figures of India consistently yeah. now. Uh, you've yeah. covered Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel, Swami Vivekanand, yeah. uh, Srila Prabhupada right now. Now, so is this a particular re- reason why you're picking up uh, historical characters uh, from our past, and or maybe so maybe in the future you'll pick up characters from our present too? So, yeah. is there a reason why are you doing this? Well, I'm a historian, uh, Kushal. You know, and looking at history is my job. Um, but I think uh, when I began writing being Hindu, I was very cognizant of the fact that one of the big gaps that India has, even today, I would say, but things have changed a little bit. Indians know very little about their own history. Uh, Indians know very little about their own culture, about their own heroes. Uh, Indians live in many senses a borrowed socio-cultural life. What do I mean by that? Uh, Indians constantly at every walk of life emulate a different culture, a different people, uh, and, uh, you know, and and, uh, try to cut paste those ideas onto our daily lives. Now, there's nothing wrong. Let ideas come to us from anywhere and let us open the doors of our minds and let ideas flow from every culture. However, as true as that is, uh, it is also true that if you have no sense of uh, the first one, of course, is from Tagore. The second one from Vivekananda. If you don't know who you are, you will never know where you're going and where you want to go. So if we don't have a deep sense of who we are, we are never going to understand where we are going. Now, this is really critical. And um, I do my work uh, in a sense to fill this gap. Uh, This is the gap that my work fills. And by picking up these characters, I am essentially trying to tell the story of India's past through the eyes of some of its, you know, most influential uh, men and women. So if I was to ask you, which one was in terms of researching and trying to, you know, because when you're looking at someone from the past and and I and I always ask this to Vikram too, Vikram Sampad, because he yeah. also looks up. You know, and he's going to write a few books. So, uh, in in maybe if I was to ask you between Sardar Patel, uh, Swami Vivekanand, and uh, Srila Prabhupada now, as we're going to be talking about the book, uh, which one was the toughest to research? If I was to ask you, well, I think each one had its own challenges. Um, uh, with Vivekananda, uh, so much had been said about him. One had to find something new to say about him, and I am delighted that you know. I was the first one to use the phrase, the modern monk. And I see that, you know, everybody uses that phrase for Vivekananda these days, you know. Uh, So that's, I I consider that a little bit uh, of a source of joy for me. Um, You know, with Patil, one was 
very cognizant that one was entering into not just a historical debate, but also a current socio-political debate, right? And one had to be particularly careful about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, archival work for Patel happened in three countries uh, around the world. So that was really exciting. With Srila Prabhupada, the exciting thing was so little had been said about him, apart from, you know, things that ISKCON monks had written. So there had never been, before I wrote this book, a really independent assessment of Srila Prabhupada and his work in life. Uh, and no one independent, in a sense, had really traversed through the archives of ISKCON uh, and tried to tell that story. Uh, so that was really interesting because if you really think about it, after Vivekananda, Srila Prabhupada is the person who has the biggest for global footprint. Uh, in fact, Srila Prabhupada's footprint was much bigger than uh, Vivekananda's um, in what I call global Hinduism, which is the spread of Hinduism across the world in the 19th and the 20th century, the um, 1920th and of course the 21st century, which is you know, ongoing, so to speak. So two of the most influential figures there are Vivekananda and Srila Prabhupada. And uh, Srila Prabhupada by far has a bigger footprint because ISKCON, of course, grew to so many centers. And, you know, he in his own lifetime built more than 100 temples around the world. Vivekananda is far, far better known. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada was definitely a gap waiting to be filled. So in the book, you write something specific. I'm going to read this. So you say there are two ways of comparing the messages of these two men, obviously Vivekananda and Srila Prabhupada who played a pioneering role across generations in taking the message of Hinduism to the world. One way to analyze this is that unlike Vivekananda, Prabhupada's was in a sense a harder message to deliver to the West. Vivekananda preached a universal, formless, qualityless divine consciousness that could be accessed by all human beings through deeper, more resonant contemplation on themselves. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. So so how do you see the, the journey of both the both the men who fly from India to the United States of America, which is kind of a huge launching pad in their lives. But but uh, so how would you compare both of their lives and messages in that sense? Yeah, so let me begin by completing the second part, which you, you didn't read, in the sense, you know, if Vivekananda taught this formless, you know, um, uh, divine that could be accessed through individual contemplation, Srila Prabhupada, as part of the Gaudiya Vaishnavite tradition, was teaching uh, a very real sort of uh, a divine with form, you know, and a name and a personality, you know, uh, a Godhead which had personality, Krishna, right? So in that sense, it was tougher. And I also go on to say that's one way of looking at it. The second way of looking at it is that perhaps Srila Prabhupada had it easier because he was preaching to uh, primarily Christians who understood this idea of a, of a, of a divine with personality, right? Uh, it was uh, tougher for them to understand Vivekananda's message uh, of, uh, you know, formless divine. So in a sense, Srila Prabhupada uh, could explain to them that uh, the divine has form. And to Christians who were listening to uh, his uh, message, they understood that more easily. Now, it's hard for us to decide which one it was. Maybe it was a bit of both. But that's a very, you know, legitimate way of comparing the, their journeys. Another way of looking at their journeys, of course, is remember... Vivekananda, even though he also arrived in America with uh, very little resources, really 
was uh, propelled into American society through very elite followers. Some of his earliest followers were uh, Boston elite, uh, you know, and New York elite. Remember the person who wrote the letter of uh, introduction for Swami Vivekananda uh, to the Parliament of Religion, uh, Religions at Chicago uh, was a Harvard professor, whereas uh, Srila Prabhupada had an extremely humble beginning. His initial followers were really hippies uh, of Upper East Side um, in, in New York, and many of them really were uh, penniless. Uh, and, and he built a movement using those people. And they were all part of this, you know, anti-Vietnam war protests uh, that was happening in America at that time. And uh, those are the people, many of them were, uh, you know, what we today would call drug addicts, right? Many of them were, um, you know, uh, were, were deep into substance abuse. So, uh, which I mentioned in my book, of course. Uh, and those were the first followers of, of Srila Prabhupada in America. So in that sense, they had a very different journey too. Uh, also, how much of a role do you think pre and post independence realities have to do with the journey of Swami Vivekananda and Srila Prabhupada? Does that matter? Of course. Uh, you know, Swami Vivekananda was very cognizant that he was a citizen of uh, colonially ruled India. Uh, he was very cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, there was a revolutionary moment brewing in his home country and India needed to be free. Uh, he was very, very cognizant of that. Srila Prabhupada, of course, in a sense, came on firmer ground. He, of course, had seen the independence movement. Uh, he was a student at that time, but he came from independent India. So that certainly uh, gave him uh, you know, firmer footing. Uh, so that's certainly another way to compare. Uh, we have to notice that both uh, Srila Prabhupada and Swami Vivekananda had a certain revolutionary fervor. After all, Swami Vivekananda um, you know, as, as as we know, had certainly very deep things and very resonant things to say about India's independence uh, and India throwing off the colonial yoke. Uh, it's just that, you know, he could have easily been a revolutionary, but he sort of shunned that path and, and took up the robes of a monk. Uh, Srila Prabhupada, in fact, could have also been a revolutionary. Remember, here was a man who didn't finally take his uh, college degree, uh, you know, because he was protesting against the British Raj. Uh, and um, he could have also been a revolutionary, but, you know, in a sense, took up the path first of a householder and then of a monk. Now, there is this specific aspect that you talk about in the book. Um, now, I'm going to read this line and I'm going to take it to a larger. It's just a single line you say in the book. Where you say there is another and even more vital reason to consider Prabhupada the pioneer. That reason is his publishing legacy. Yeah. Now, what is this publishing legacy also? And I'm going to now take this to the next level and ask you, what is the aspect in the larger sense of the printing press itself in Bengal? How much of a role did the printing press play in the larger movement of Bengal itself? So we'll mix no, the two. No, absolutely. And, you know, there is no running away from this. Um, uh, the printing press was introduced it, in Bengal by uh, uh, missionaries, um, uh, British and Scottish missionaries, uh, they, the first things that were printed using those printing presses were the Bible uh, in Bengal. Uh, but of course, Bengali intellectuals and writers took that technology and used it, uh, in a sense, against the Raj by publishing uh, material, that um, revolutionary material, uh, consistently uh, against the British Raj, you know, right from Bankim Chandra's Anandamat 
onwards, right? Um, Srila Prabhupada was a great believer and his um, his guru had told him that one of his, uh, you know, tasks was to spread the word of Shri Krishna in the English language using the most popular technology of that time, which was the printing press and books. So Srila Prabhupada learned from this and, um, you know, took upon this entire challenge of spreading the word of Shri Krishna using books and built the Bhakti Vedanta, Iskon, you know, built the Bhakti Vedanta Book Trust, which uh, became one of the biggest uh, publishing machinery uh, the world had ever seen. You know, millions and tens of millions of books. And even today around the world, one of the things that Miscon, uh, you know, monks are most connected to and are identified by is that they sell books, right? So this is an integral part of, of Srila Prabhupada's message. And the Bhakti Vedanta Book Trust remains um, hugely influential and sells tens of thousands of copies every day. But in Srila Prabhupada's lifetime, it certainly had become a global publishing machine, uh, selling tens and millions of copies uh, around the world of the Bhagavad Gita, of the books that Srila Prabhupada wrote. You remember Srila Prabhupada himself wrote about 70 books, um, uh, you know, and, and he sort of um, was, a, was a voracious writer. Um, you know, there are these wonderful descriptions that he would travel around the world and work constantly. And at the end, when his, you know, his day would come to an end, by about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, he would go to sleep. Then he would wake up at about 1.30, 2 o'clock and then start writing. And he would write till the morning and then start his day. And this would he would do night after night, night after night, month after month, year after year, which is how he was able to write all these books. And these are not easy books to write. You know, he translated, um, as you know, the Bhagavad Gita, a very famous translation, the Bhagavad Gita as it is, uh, which is what it's called, uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam and many other things of Gaudiya Vaishnavite literature. So he was a voracious writer, a voracious reader, and a voracious publisher. So he really pioneered a particular kind of, you know, after the Gita Press, we talk a lot about the Gita Press, right? After the Gita Press, Srila Prabhupada's Bhaktivedanta Book Trust is perhaps the most influential religious publishing endeavor India has ever seen. And I would argue it's actually much more influential because it was from day one a global operation, whereas the Gita Press is primarily an Indian operation, right? It, uh, but the Bhakti Vedanta Book Trust always was in the English language primarily, and it was always a global operation. So that's an incredible feat. And remember, all this the man did between the age of 70 and 80. So uh, that's another incredible feat. You know, Vivekananda, we were talking about Vivekananda, Kushal, you, have, you know, we must realize Vivekananda was a young man uh, of around 30 uh, years of age when he went to America. Srila Prabhupada was 70 years and had already had two heart attacks uh, before he arrived in America. So it's quite incredible that this man was able to do all these things in the decade that he lived between 70 and 80. But do you think ISKCON as a movement would like, let's say, I mean, I know it's a bit of crystal gaze, ball gazing and, you know, hypothetical scenarios. But let's say if Srila Prabhupada would not have gone to the United States of America, do you think ISKCON would be where it is today? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, there is no two ways about it. Look, Srila, the, the, you know, there is no running away from this. And this is the truth. And ISKCON monks will tell you this. Srila Prabhupada made no headway uh, and, and actually failed to create a movement as long as he was in India. 
uh, he did try when he was in India for many years to build a movement, sell his books, uh, print his books and so on and so forth. But he made no headway in India. It is only when he went to America that his movement suddenly flourished and became this wonderful thing. Um, I've often said that it's, of course, partly you have to understand his message fell on very receptive uh, years because after all, uh, he was giving a very different pacifist message um, in many ways. Uh, even though he never considered himself pacifist, he was very clear that war when necessary uh, is a good thing and is a dharmic thing, uh, which is, of course, he believed the lesson of the Bhagavad Gita. But he definitely gave a very alternative lifestyle and alternative idea in an America that was very ripe for such a message because large parts of American society were rejecting really uh, the, the, you know, what we today call the military industrial complex and it's, uh, you know, hyper-capitalism uh, during the, um, during the anti-Vietnam war protest. And remember Kushil, um, what we're seeing in the tribalism that we see in America today, all that's, you know, comes from these years, you know, when, when America was civil rights movement, when America was splitting apart into two, all of that legacy is alive with us even today. So you can see why Srila Prabhupada's message of singing and dancing and, you know, devoting oneself to Krishna and, and you know, moving away from the crass materialism that many people saw around them fell in very receptive years uh, in those years in the West. Now, uh, let's talk about Gaudiya Vaishnavism as a pantha or a sampradaya and, and their journey. I, I don't know how many people would know about it because... Uh, um, you know, these are things just we take it for granted. Huh? Iskon Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But maybe we should tell people what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is. Maybe what, what is the story of Gaudiya Vaishnavism? How it came about? What is the sampradaya? What is the lineage? How it has been carried forward? Maybe, you know, because I meet a lot of young kids who don't know these things. Like they, till the extent they think Iskon now is a separate religion or something. No, of course, absolutely. I mean, look, everything that Srila Prabhupada did, in a sense, he was taking from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, right? And the Gaudiya Vaishnavite tradition, of course, is a tradition of Vishnu worshippers that goes back, you know, to the origins of, uh, of the Hindu faith. But its seminal figure, its seminal figure, of course, apart from Lord Vishnu himself, uh, is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You know, the great Bhakti movement saint, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the man who brought about this entire, you know, my book is called Sing, Dance and Pray. Who taught Gaudiya Vaishnavites singing, dancing and praying? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, this incredible figure who uh, appears in 15th century Bengal and uh, leads these Kirtan uh, processions across uh, Bengal uh, and then, you know, in other parts of India, uh, really breaking the barrier uh, created by, you know, uh, many elite Brahmins between the you know common people and people who can sort of worship in Sanskrit, uh, and he sort of changes uh, you know uh, in, you know according to the to the earliest scriptures the Mahamantra begins with Hari Rama right and there was this whole thing that um, this control was only in the hands of the priests who could use this Mahamantra. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu comes and says you know change the mantra in a sense and he puts Hare Krishna first. And he says, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And he says, you don't have to do anything as long as you're able to chant the mantra, which is for everyone, right? You are embraced in the love of Krishna. 
And today, even today, you know, like for instance, we say the Gayatri Mantra, you know, there's a process, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to be clean, you have to bathe, you know, you can't just say the Gayatri Mantra anytime, right? Whereas the Mahamantra given by uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, there are no boundaries. You can say it anytime on an empty stomach or a full stomach, you know, um, you know, before bathing, after bathing, whatever. Whenever you say the name of the Lord, it purifies you, right? And that's an incredible thing. I mean, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu really was one of those incredibly inclusive figures at a particularly, uh, you know, uh, troubled moment in India's history in the 15th century. Um, and he, he the, you know, he was revolutionary in many, many ways. And he sort of creates this entire movement, uh, which we today call Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, you know, and Srila Prabhupada, you know, was that came from that lineage, you know, his, uh, Srila Prabhupada's own guru, uh, Bhakti um, Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, um, you know, was really in, in a sense, one of the sort of lion figures of Gaudiya Vaishnava, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. Uh, um, and and they they were trying to sort of they were the other so you know I always say that in, in you know at a time when you know Bhakti Vedanta Saraswati Thakur and all these people were there we talk about the Brahmo Samaj we talk about Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda these were two great streams in Bengal right the other big Renaissance stream of Bengal of spirituality is this entire Bhakti Vinod Thakur, Bhakti, Vida, Bhakti uh, Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and all these people, right? They are the Gaudiya Vishnavites, right? And um, if you read my book, you will see that they were, you know, many of them were leading processions, um, you know, of Kirtan in the middle of plague in Calcutta, right? And uh, the Ananda Bazar, uh, the, the Amrita Bazar Patrika, the biggest newspaper of that time, were reporting about these Kirtan, uh, you know, festivals through the streets of Calcutta in the middle of a plague. So it's a, it's a very vibrant tradition. And ISKCON is really the sort of more contemporary avatar. What Srila Prabhupada did was a more contemporary avatar of that tradition. You know, uh, it had been, uh, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had predicted that in every village and town and street in the world, the name of Krishna would be sung. And literally, they tried to make it come true. You know, Srila Prabhupada's movement took the name of Krishna and the Mahamatra to every corner of the world. You know, there is barely a country which ISKCON did not touch. Certainly, they were in every continent. You know, the Ukraine war is going on. Do you know one of the biggest spiritual movements in Ukraine is the Hare Rama, Hare Krishna movement. There are yeah. huge, um, you know, gatherings of, of, of Krishna Bhakts. Uh, under ISKCON that uh, that happened in Ukraine. Most people in India don't even know this, you know, that Russia and Ukraine are two places where there's a huge tradition of Krishna uh, consciousness, right? All of this happened because of Srila Prabhupada. And all of this happened to Srila Prabhupada because of his guru, of course, but because of the lineage that begins, in a sense, um, uh, you know, as long as history has been recorded with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who's the sort of, you know, breakthrough character in this story. So it's an incredible story. And, you know, I certainly believe this is only the beginning of my journey in, in this entire world. And hopefully I'll do more, uh, you know, research and work in this field. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Like most people don't remember. I think he was the contemporary of Swami Vivekananda, right? That's right. 
he would be the contemporary but i want to talk about another aspect and somebody is even asked this question so i you know i just I, want to sorry apologies for interrupting but you know he actually tried to sell books and send books around the world it begins with him mm-hmm. he started doing it in small ways and then sheila propat comes and he's able to do it at a huge gargantuan scale right but his guru had already started you know uh, sending the message of gaudiya vaishnavism in different parts of the world my apologies i interrupted you please go no on. no 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 problem so i also want well, i want to talk about uh, this aspect um again i'm reading a quote from your book you've written shrila prabhupad belong to a suvarna banik community in vaishnavism all that would change on 8 september 1911 at a mass gathering at of traditional vaishnavite scholars all of them caste brahmins except bhakti siddhanta saraswati who was indeed the most qualified brahmana though not by caste at this event bhakti siddhanta challenged the supremacy of hereditary transmission of knowledge and argued that it is true devotion and spiritual practice that mattered more than lineage he presented a paper titled brahmana o vaishnava brahmana and vaishnava which became a guiding document for the reinvigorated gaudiya vaishnavite tradition as started by his father now there has been a long time not only me i mean abhinav prakash has also said this in many ways you know the bhakti movement for me has always been uh, you know hindu modernity in that sense uh, the bhakti movement in that sense has been the challenge to orthodoxy inside our own samaj the problems inside our own samaj where we had birth based uh, jati varna systems that had crept into now how much of a role did you think uh, iskon and um, Shila Prabhupada or Gaudiya Vaishnavism itself had to play in breaking this caste barrier. No, no, absolutely, and uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad. Um, you know, you're the first interviewer of uh, of mine for this book who's mentioned this particular incident, and I thank you deeply for bringing it up. Um, look, absolutely, and that incident is a very famous incident because it shatters many, many decades, centuries of orthodoxy, even within. Uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but remember, where is the inspiration that is being used in that incident from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? It is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who said, "It doesn't matter. You know, you take doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, you come together and just say the Mahamantra, right? And you have the love of Krishna, right? What?" Um, See, it gives me goose flesh to think about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Anyway, um, what Shila Prabhupada does is take it one step further. He says, "Why, why confine it to India? Every person in the world is entitled to the love of Sri Krishna." So he goes to America and says, "It doesn't matter who you are. You're black. You're white. You're Latino. Whatever. It doesn't matter. You're Russian. You're Australian. You're Swiss. It does not matter." as long as you are wanting to say the maha mantra and submit yourself to the love of shri krishna you are invited that's incredible right um, you know remember shila prabhupada's greatest disciples in his lifetime were mostly non indians they were all people from different countries who had gathered together because they he was able to convince them that taking the name of the lord was beneficial to them that's an incredible thing so he what chaitanya mahaprabhu did in 15th century bengal and different parts of india uh, and what uh, what you know shila prabhupada's guru was able to do against the orthodoxy shila prabhupada was able to do in the west and in so many countries around the world 
it's really an incredible thing. I mean, if you think about the 70-year-old man buzzing from country to country in ships and planes, you know, launching temple after temple, it's it's quite an incredible thing. Uh, he, of course, spoke uh, perfect English. Uh, he had been educated uh, in, a, in, a, in a British um, education system in Calcutta, uh, quite like Swami Vivekananda. Uh, he was a near contemporary of uh, Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose, as I mentioned in my book. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had seen people burn, uh, you know, British goods in bonfires in Calcutta and so on and so forth, right? And for that man to whiz away uh, in different parts of the world, you know, enchant Allen Ginsberg in America and George Harrison in the United Kingdom and so on and so forth, is quite a, quite a marvelous story, really. And I was absolutely captivated uh, by the story, which is why I decided to write the book. You know, what fascinates me about Srila Prabhupada in that sense is that the level of confidence the man had and how he reversed the gaze on the West. You know, this yeah. is usually it is the Orient looking at the Occident. Let's be very clear. And Srila Prabhupada, for me, Srila Prabhupada is special because it is the Occident looking at the Orient and it on its own terms and telling them, I guess you're like this. Maybe you can become like this. And a lot of people then actually buying the message but it was not all you know a walk in the park right maybe maybe tell everybody a little bit about his you know horrifying struggles that he had earlier on in the bay area and in new york where he moved in and and maybe we can tell them how hard it was for for the man itself no it was very hard imagine like i mean the the old man really the old man you know 70 years old Essentially, imagine Srila Prabhupada in a in a coat, but wearing his you know dhoti and kurta in the New York cold, which is for anybody who's lived in New York, uh, the, you know you can barely imagine stepping out in that cold. But in that cold, walking up and down New York, uh, you know, trying to uh, teach people Krishna consciousness. Imagine living in the squalor, in the true squalor of uh, among drug addicts in uh, the Upper East Side and trying to teach them about Krishna consciousness. Imagine uh, constantly building a new movement and, you know, people, including authorities, trying to cheat you, take money away from you. Uh, you know, you're trying to build a temple, including in India, and authorities trying to cheat you, you know, steal money from you, not give you permissions. Constantly, it was a battle all his life, you know. Um, his entire life story is, is a life of struggle. Um, also, you know, many of the young followers, uh, you know, getting attracted to the movement and then not quite being able to understand because, you know, there's a huge cultural difference, right? I mean, these people have no clue. Uh, so, you know, battling that. So really, uh, I mean, if you really think about a 70-year-old man trying to do all of this, um, you know, in his ill health, uh, you know, one feels a great, great deal of empathy. But, you know, he had faith. He really had faith and that faith carried him through right till the end. He really had faith. He had faith that Krishna would come to his assistance each time. And, you know, as, as many people of great faith realize, if you have that kind of faith, it actually comes true and it came true for him. Also, you know what happens is when you're trying to build an organization, uh, in India, the challenges are different. But then when you move out of India, now it is a fact that nobody can deny that 
you know, the timing was perfect in that sense that he went at a time in the United States of America where I don't know what word should I use. I mean, the hippie movement, Timothy Leary and many other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The hippie movement was there. Timothy Leary was there and the experiment with psychedelics was going on. And yeah. and, and yeah. I think that society was yearning for something, an anchor. Yeah. And a lot of times this is what people don't realize that. And, and this is coming from me, Acharvak. Like people don't understand what religion offers to human beings. And 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 I get it eventually now at the age of 41, which is why I'm at peace with my my personal beliefs while having, you know, these things all around me. And I and I see the value. And I think the reason a lot of people shifted from maybe just having a psychedelic experience to a lot of these movements was because of that extra factor that it provides at a cognitive level. But but it was not just, I mean, you had uh, you know, Marishi, Marishi Yogi, the Mahesh Yogi. The, I mean, I think uh, the Beatles had gone over there too uh, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for many right. retreats. Yeah, and and it was at that point of time, and it, you know, in in a way, I think for Srila Prabhupada, it was the perfect match made in heaven that he was at the right place at the right time, and and yes, he he did go through a lot of struggles, and 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 that's part of the part of the journey, but but. Uh, so what were the maybe the stones thrown at him when he was there? Like what what were the challenges? I guess I mean let me give you one example. I mean, here's an old man trying to organize a Rath Yatra on the on the streets of San Francisco. Would you think police officers who were asked to give permission to huge tall wooden <laughs> rathas, you know, on on these cars, you know, traveling across the streets of San Francisco would have thought? They obviously must have thought that this is completely wild, right, in many ways, and yet they made it happen. I mean, uh, I sometimes think that this is quite incredible. I mean, you can't imagine somebody trying to do that in San Francisco today. Imagine 30, 40 years ago, right? I mean, uh, it's it's that's just one example. In fact, some of the people trying to cheat them of money were in India <laughs> rather than in America or in, in Europe, you know, as always. Um, uh, in, in Mumbai, actually, and in other places, right? So, uh, you know, constantly, uh, you know, being thought of as this strange person, um, you know, often shunned, often people wouldn't listen to him. Uh, people would think that, you know, he's, uh, he's trying to promote a cult, trying to brainwash people. I mentioned in my book, there's also this famous uh, legal case that happens against Siskon during his lifetime. You know where they say oh you know you're trying to brainwash young people and so on and so forth all that happens and it's amazing how this this elderly man manages to survive through it all and build this global movement that has lasted and continues to grow even today it's quite incredible you know what one thing that i find very interesting about iskon and srila prabhupada's views now i'm not taking a pro or an anti view over here sure. but you do mention it in the book is his stand on drug usage he yeah. was very clear about it. Not good. Not under yeah. my watch kind of a thing. Also, he was very strict on what you eat if you join me. Yeah, You can be white, black, brown, Chinese, yeah. Japanese, whatever you want to be. You yeah. become a part of my panth and my sampradaya. You're going to eat Vaishnavite food. So he was very strict on those things, right? He would not compromise also on his core principles. Also teaching the Americans to wash their hands before they eat, you know, which I always thought was really interesting. 
I mean, I always thought of Srila Srila Prabhupada trying to teach these hippies of Upper East Side that they must wash their hands before they eat and not eat meat and eat khichri and roti and sabzi and so on and so forth. Quite incredible. You know, I mentioned in my book some of the original recipes of khichri and roti and so on and so forth that uh, Srila Prabhupada himself uh, wrote. And I included that in my book. Even today, food is a great, great and important part of his con. You know, Srila Prabhupada, I was very moved by the hunger of children that he saw around him and um, said that um, within the 10 kilometer radius of an ISKCON temple, no one would go hungry. And that's why food is such a big, big part of ISKCON even today. Uh, as you know, um, you know, ISKCON Bangalore runs the Akshay Patra, you know, uh, the, the foundation, which I believe in late, at latest count has served 2 billion meals uh, to children uh, around India. So, you know, that's another great contribution of Srila Prabhupada, teaching people how to live, teaching people how to eat. Uh, Srila Prabhupada would have preferred, of course, uh, celibacy from his uh, disciples, but he realized in America that's probably not possible. So he began to really preach to them that uh, if, when you have a partner, be loyal to that partner and be devoted to that partner and be, you know, uh, be, be completely with that partner for life. All of these were revolutionary ideas, you know, to the flower power generation and to the hippie generation, you know, and I, and it's, it's, it's incredible that he, he succeeded, um, not without challenges, of course, uh, but, you know, still managed to build a global movement. You know, what I find very interesting is, um, and, and I'm going to read again, an excerpt from your book, and you've written this combination of piety and sticking to customs, which were completely unfamiliar to his American audience, fits in awkwardly with his outreach among drug addicts and nudists. But perhaps the thing to notice about Swami Bhaktivedanta is his effort to bring every element of the devotional practice that he knew and loved in India to every arena where he appears in America. The words of Sanskrit and old Bengali are intact. He's happy to explain them, but he does not change them. And he does no. not see a contradiction. Even when he speaks amongst the billowing smoke of marijuana, Bhakti Vedanta only speaks of Krishna. As he had explained in 1967 to a TV interviewer, Alan Burke, he, Burke, said, well, if this movement is spiritual, why do you have a car? How is that spiritual? Prabhupada said, if a car is used in Krishna consciousness, then it is a spiritual car. This is fascinating. The, the man was uh, very clear and practical at the same time. Like, if I need a car to go there, I'll go there and I'll still use Sanskrit words and Bengali words. So, I mean, this 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 is amazing. And I'll tell you why. Because, and I, I actually understand this, that there are certain words in our bhashas, like whether it's Hindi, Bengali, Tamil, Sanskrit, anything that are just not translatable. And we should not translate those words and we should make it part of our linguistic pantheon when we use them. And this is something that I actually admired about Srila Prabhupada because he never changed the words. Like he always used Atman, right? He never said soul. He would say Atman, 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 Atman. Now, later on, his followers might have changed many things and many messages. But the point is the value of Sanskrit and Bengali words was understood by that man. Uh, uh, do you think that there is a danger of that dilution maybe in the future generations now that Srila Prabhupada is not there? No, I, I mean, I hope not. And no one can say about the future, but I don't think so. I mean, uh, let me give you an example. I mean, I mentioned in my book that there is this incredible thing where uh, Allen Ginsberg is singing Hare Krishna, uh, the, you know, the Hare Krishna mantra 
in a conversation with William Buckley Jr. on TV. And uh, you're right. I mean, you know, the Bengali uh, verses that comes from Gaudiya Vaishnavite tradition from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's time, Srila Prabhupada did not touch and he did not change. He would sing that in the heart of America, in New York, in San Francisco, in Australia, in Switzerland, you know, wherever he went in Africa. Uh, and even today, you know, like, for instance, if you go to Iskhan Bangalore, uh, you know, uh, a temple I'm, uh, I'm familiar with, most of the monks there are, uh, you know, are not Bengalis, but uh, they all learn to sing those Bengali songs of old Bengali. It's not even contemporary Bengali, not the Bengali that I speak. This is old Bengali, right? Um, they all learn to sing those songs and understand what those songs mean. Uh, it's it's quite incredible and it's an unbroken tradition for so many hundreds of years. So Srila Prabhupada never diluted his message. You know, that's the most incredible thing. He never diluted the words. He never diluted the message. Uh, he was, like you say, willing to explain it a hundred times, but he never said, okay, well, you can't understand this. Let's rewrite this. He never did that. He stuck to the authenticity of the message. Yeah. Another thing, I'm not going to read it, but I will recommend everyone to go through is maybe the Alan Prabhupada discussion, uh, I think, uh, on uh, uh, Timothy Leary. That, that was something very fascinating. And uh, like, you know, just a little bit like, do you take rebirth literally, Prabhupada? Yes. What is the difficulty? Alan, I just don't remember having been born before Prabhupada. You don't remember your childhood. That does not mean you had no childhood. Do you remember when you were a small boy? What did you do? And it's an interesting, now I personally may not agree with the arguments, but I, I what I find very interesting in this entire process is the comfort Srila Prabhupada had in being questioned, in being probed. And standing his ground and remaining confident at the same time, which is uh, ironically, you know, uh, my own experience of living in the West is that uh, the West only understands one language, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. This is the language of confidence. They don't understand the language of humility in, in some weird way. Like if you stand up for yourself and you say, I'm here, now listen to me. They pay attention. If you're just someone who's just sitting in the corner doing nothing, nobody listens to you over here. And I think Srila Prabhupada kind of showed it in his own way where he would always stand up for his beliefs and his way of living. Or, or am I getting it totally wrong? No, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's absolutely right. And that goes on even today. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, me having come to your show so many times before. You'll remember our conversation on being Hindu, uh, Kushal. And it's, you know, bears uh, repeating here that um, even till today, I mean, when I published Being Hindu in India, people said, oh, well, first people said this can never be published. Uh, first people said this can never be published in the in anywhere uh, around the world. Then people said it can, uh, you know, it can never really do well. People won't read it. But I have I found exactly what you said. The more confident you are, the more you sort of put your voice across, the more people are willing to listen. Now, what 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 do you say now? There now maybe we should talk about a little bit about because you know we are in the second half of our discussion. Maybe we can touch a little bit about the controversial aspects also. And uh, now there's always this criticism labeled at. Uh, Iskon, that you know it is a cult it is a cult it is a cult kind of a thing I, i'll mm -hmm. tell you an anecdote myself i was in a dinner in or uh, lunch sorry or whatever it was in in austin and it was a bunch of americans and there was this one indian or uh, american 
I mean, it's basically American of Indian origin. And he, of all the people, said Krishna cults are not Hinduism. And uh, and then on the other side, there were others inside uh, also who say, no, 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 ISKCON is not Hinduism kind of a thing. So how do you do, how do we play this game? Like, How can Gaudiya Vaishnavism not become Hinduism? Yeah, these are all old battles, you know. I, I think we have we have surpassed these things. I mean, certainly no one in ISKCON would today say that uh, they are not part of Hinduism. Um, you know, I, I did, like I said, I mean, I mean, they literally worship Krishna. I mean, you know, if that's not Hinduism, I don't know what it is. I mean, this may these are ridiculous things, you know. And these, I think, debates from 20, 30 years ago. I think these things don't work anymore. Uh, I would not give too much legitimacy. Some people may still be saying these things, but uh, we are at the last leg of such debates. I think uh, these things are coming to an end now. Uh, and I think more than ever, uh, there is a strong understanding that there's a unified Hinduism. Uh, a lot of people see this also to divide Hinduism. And I think, you know, at one point Hinduism was, or Hindu communities were on their back foot, uh, but I, all that has changed now and it's changing very fast if it hasn't changed everywhere. So I think these are just, yeah, people say these things, but they have no value in my humble opinion. Yeah. So another thing that I found very interesting were, was that for Prabhupada, like the four defining sins of the Kaliuga, as you yeah. have written in the book, the age of darkness and the fall of humankind, along with yeah. gambling, intoxication and illicit sex or sex outside marriage was yeah. meat eating. Now, that's not the interesting part. It's the latter next paragraph that you've written. So what is legal meat eating? Legal meat eating is that you sacrifice one animal before the goddess, deity Kali, goddess Kali. And there yeah. are so many rules and regulations under regulative principle. One is allowed to eat meat, not that maintain big, big slaughterhouse and purchase from the butcher shop and eat meat. That is illegal. So, so even in that sense, there was a nuance on meat eating too, right? Yeah, of course. And, you know, Srila Prabhupada, like uh, many, um, you know, uh, people who build large global movements realize that you have to, you, you have a particular vision and then you also have to accommodate reality, right? And, uh, you know, uh, this kind of sacrifice and so on and so forth and meat eating. I mean, that's a reality in certain pockets, right? And and he realized that even within Hinduism, this this entire uh, tradition uh, was was very much alive. So he sort of tried to marry these ideas together and present, you know, the most kosher version according to him. Yeah, and and okay, now let us talk about maybe the controversial aspects and the attacks on uh, ISKCON itself, that the struggles they faced, whether you know, it was, look, any any organization that grows is going to be criticized. There are going to be mistakes made on the way by individuals or, or at whatever level. Now, but what I find very interesting about ISKCON and Srila Prabhupada is that he realized that the organization had grown huge in his lifetime. And he knew that what happens with every whether we like it or not personality driven movement once the personality passes away it tends to falter so now Srila Prabhupada came up uh, as you mentioned in the book itself about a unique concept called the GBC right the governing body council or the global body governing body council whatever it is called by ISKCON and it basically decentralized the uh, operations of ISKCON like a lot of people don't realize that ISKCON in India is very different from ISKCON in the United States of America and Canada. They have actually got nothing to do with each other. Even on 
issues pertaining to global importance, the ISKCON in India might have a very different view from the ISKCON in the United States of America. So can you maybe explain why Srila Prabhupada actually did that? And maybe in a, a little bit of detail, because I think this is a very fascinating aspect of the structure of ISKCON itself. Yeah, so, you know, my book, of course, ends at, with the passing of Srila Prabhupada. And all this is, in a sense, what happens afterwards. But in his lifetime, and I'll focus on that, in his lifetime, Srila Prabhupada really felt that he would create with his core disciples a team that would inherit so that it doesn't become, you know, one person. It's a one person sort of organization. He wanted to give control to a whole bunch of his closest disciples who would carry forward the message after him. And that's what he did. Many of them were, um, you know, people who were not Indians and, um, you know, they had um, they had been with the movement, obviously, for, uh, you know, uh, only a few years to so the decade that Srila Prabhupada was building it. Uh, so when once he passed away, uh, it sort of got decentralized between these people and where they set up, you know, uh, their, um, uh, other centers of ISKCON and so on and so forth. So sort of that spread happened in that manner. Right. And yeah, uh, certainly this is true that uh, there are many branches of ISKCON and uh, it is not a centralized organization uh, and uh, different uh, ISKCONs have sometimes different perspectives to issues uh, which don't necessarily always agree. So this is certainly true. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, a byproduct of, uh, you know, the Srila Prabhupada and, you know, this this governing council that he created. Um, and and this he at least felt that this would perhaps be a good way of uh, of you know uh, running the organization. Now, um, in retrospect, was it the best way, and so on and so forth? I mean, that's for further research and for me to look into you know Srila Prabhupada is gone after Srila Prabhupada, so to speak, uh, at some point maybe. But uh, for now, certainly, um, as I mentioned in my book, that was you know Srila Prabhupada was running such a large organization that had grown so quickly was tough for Srila Prabhupada. And he sort of constantly worked to bring all these elements together and get the right people. And many of these people were, you know, very young and they had only been with the movement for, you know, just, you know, maybe five, seven years, um, 10 years at the most that he was building it. So many of them were not steeped in the absolute uh, traditions of India. Uh, and uh, sometimes there were some, you know, uh, difficulties, which I mentioned in my book, but, um, but and therefore to overcome it and uh, to for it not to become a, a single person cult or a single person organization, uh, Srila Prabhupada decided to sort of spread it out, so to speak, and give control uh, to his disciples. Um, uh, in my opinion, of course, um, you know, uh, the sort of the, the figure uh, quite like uh, Ramakrishna Mission revolves around the figure of Sri Ramakrishna, ISKCON, in a sense, you know, uh, revolves around the figure of Srila Prabhupada. Yeah, and, and what is interesting, see, most people don't realize this. Even I did not know this. Like, uh, you know, my childhood is my father was a member of ISKCON and, you know, we would go to the temple for puja, for food, and we have stayed in different ISKCON properties across the world. That is the average experience of a middle class and above Indian when it comes to ISKCON. I'm just okay. putting it out there. My life changed when I started working with ISKCON in Mumbai. Mm. We we yeah. started... Now, even inside India, there are different branches. Like Anamritam yeah. is in Mumbai. They have their own food delivery program. But Akshay Patra in Bangalore have their own food delivery program. Yeah. And I would never understand. I was like, Dono same to ho bolte na. 
वो अलग है हम अलग है एंड आई एंड देन आई स्टार्टेड आस्किंग देम आई लाइक हाउ आर यू गाइस डिफरेंट एंड देन दे एक्सप्लेन व्हाट द जीबीसी इज हाउ थिंग्स आर डिफरेंट एंड इट्स वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग विदाउट टेकिंग नेम्स लाइक आई एम टॉकिंग अबाउट पुजारीज इनसाइड देयर एंड यू नो सी लुक वी कैन नॉट सेपरेट द स्पिरिचुअल एंड द पॉलिटिकल इन टुडेस वर्ल्ड इन द एज ऑफ ग्लोबलिज्म एंड यू नो एट टाइम्स आई वुड हैव लाइक they are speaking on a political issue why is this one in america not speaking this is like we have nothing to do with them they have nothing to do with us they have their own views and then i would be like okay so you will not comment on let's say american politics yeah we have nothing to do with them we will speak on our thing and that's when i realized like and this is why when you wrote in the book like in 1971 he wrote gbc does not mean to control a center gbc means to see that the activities of a center go on nicely i do not know why you know this this talk of you're talking about a conflict why tamala is exercising his absolute authority this is not the business of gbc the president treasurer and secretary are responsible for managing the center gbc is to see that things are going nicely but not to exert absolute authority and this is what shrila prabhupad had in mind now how good it is how bad it is how functioning it is is a matter of separate debate but i actually realized what iskon is like is only when i worked with them in mumbai and i worked on the ground in slums in different areas and i realized damn this organization is literally decentralized and they they don't know what's happening in fact most of the times the pujaris also don't know what is happening well so look i mean <laughs> i haven't gone into the details of uh, how iskon works at the moment i have confined myself to the life of shila prabhupad but you're right i mean from whatever little i understand it is quite fascinating and perhaps like i said i mean perhaps um, you know now that you're putting it like this i'm also feeling that perhaps it merits deeper look and perhaps there's a you know there is something to be said there too uh, and i'll certainly consider it but yes i mean i certainly like your reading out from my book certainly these issues did come up even when shila prabhupad was alive yeah so so before we wrap up the the chat uh, hindol so maybe this can be my last question to you um yeah. somebody did ask a question in the live uh, stream about or do you see iskon venturing out and becoming a sect of their own i think we dealt with that so that but maybe this can be my last question now what was it and i'll mix this what was it what was the lure of the west that so many of our gurus went uh, went out and ventured out into the west and what do you think is the everlasting legacy of shrila prabhupad so look in shrila prabhupad's case it was very clear that he had been instructed by his guru right it was very very clear his guru had said you take the name of shri krishna in every part of the world you know how to write and speak very well in english you use it to spread the name of krishna in the western world so for him the idea and the thought was very very clear there's no ambiguity about that the other thing is that you know i often laughingly say that even vivekananda and shila prabhupada realized i, I think from their experiences we learn that uh, india you know lands up valuing people after they make a name in the west and you know this is true perhaps in many ways even today uh, this is only partly uh, jokingly there is i think some truth to it but uh, as far as shila prabhupada is uh, concerned very clear uh, his guru had told him to do this and he worked to do this you know that was he was very clear that he was fulfilling his guru's mission yeah i, I agree with you and and that bit is very important that bit you said that unfortunately at in our culture until unless somebody does not get recognized uh, recognized from outside 
and that uh, stamp of authority does not come from outside they're not recognized i think shrila prabhupad's story and many other people's their story lies in that man hindol uh, this has been a fantastic book i had a great time reading it and and i i might have many disagreements with iskon and their particular claims on uh, on spiritual subjects or or on the uh, i mean iskon and their views on evolution and stuff like that i i disagree with them but but that does not stop me from admiring the life of shrila prabhupada and what he did for the sampraday and what he did for dharma and how he took the message of dharma everywhere and you know i, I thoroughly enjoyed this book and buddy thanks a lot for coming thank you very much and uh, you know i really and that's the point right i mean all institutions one can agree disagree and so on and so forth but shila prabhupada is a historical figure not just a religious figure uh, and i think he should be appreciated uh, even if you uh, you know uh, disagree uh, on on some of the spiritual aspects he is a historical figure he has a historical importance in the spread of global hinduism and i think that certainly uh, marks him as a great figure uh, of of his time uh and who left behind a great legacy and i think um you know uh his legacy it's time to really understand what he stands for and his legacy and that's why i wrote the book thank you very much for inviting me kushal yeah i maybe i'll end this uh, chat by reading what you wrote shila prabhupada's journey is not that of the precocious uh Uh, or the child prodigy but it is the dogged earnest path of the earnest believer whose faith lifts him to extraordinary heights this prabhupad speaks to us not from the pedestal though that is where he really belong and his life finally took him but from amidst the jostle and noise of the crowd through the jostle of building and running a global movement shrila prabhupad recognized that as important as the logistics was to advance the cause of krishna consciousness the bigger it became the more time and energy it could take up which might ironically distract from the path of seeking the divine this recognition that is the underlying theme of his life is perhaps his greatest message to serve the supreme godhead krishna without a tinge of selfishness and to build with attachment to lord krishna an organization to exclusively serve his mission therein lies his greatness i think that's a perfect way to summarize guys again please buy this book i think it's a beautiful rendition of the life of shrila prabhupad in the description of the podcast you're going to see a link to buy the book i would urge everybody to go and buy the book and you can also go and uh, follow hindol on twitter i've left his twitter handle over there too if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the sarvak podcast youtube channel like this video leave your comments over there or become members on youtube or patreon or you know the the rest of the drill you can go on spotify itunes wherever you're listening to I will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye